I've met Saddam Hussein exactly the same number of times as Donald Rumsfeld met him. The difference is, Donald Rumsfeld met him to sell him guns and to give him maps the better to target those guns. I met him to try and bring about an end to sanctions, suffering and war, a rather better use of two meetings with Saddam Hussein than your own Secretary of State for Defense made of his. Senator, in everything I said about Iraq, I turned out to be right and you turned out to be wrong. And a hundred thousand people have paid with their lives. 1,600 of them American soldiers sent to their deaths on a pack of lies. 15,000 of them wounded, many of them disabled forever on a pack of lies. I'm not washing my hands of what happened in the you past. You killed a that million a people in Iraq. That is a separate... You killed a million people in Iraq. It's incredible that you have the brass neck to be sitting here now urging another Iraq war. George, after if I was still in done. Parliament... If the world had listened to me and the anti-war movement in Britain, we would not be in the disaster that we're in today. Senator, this is the mother of all smokescreens. You are trying to divert attention from the crimes that you supported, from the theft of billions of dollars of Iraq's wealth. Have a look at the real oil for food scandal. Have a look at the 14 months you were in charge of Baghdad, the first 14 months, when 8.8 billion dollars of Iraq's wealth went missing on your watch. Have a look at Halliburton and the other American corporations that stole not only Iraq's money, but the money of the American taxpayer. Have a look at the oil that you didn't even meter, that you were shipping out of the country and selling, the proceeds of which went who knows where. Have a look at the $800 million you gave to American military commanders to hand out around the country without even counting it or weighing it. Have a look at the real scandal breaking in the newspapers today, revealed in the earlier testimony in this committee, that the biggest sanctions busters were not me or Russian politicians or French politicians. The real sanctions busters were your own companies with the connivance of your own government. I want to say it again so the backbenchers regurgitate it. We must prepare for war against China. Not because we want war, not because we're going to cause war, but because they want war. I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. I believe you will win. I am convinced you will win, and we will do everything we can to provide you with what you need to win. While we have a corrupt Ukrainian government, 
while we have our watchdog here who can't say that we followed the law on in-use monitoring, we have the President of the United States saying we need to fund pensions in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the pensions of our fellow Americans are in greater jeopardy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. That was definitely the mother of all smoke screens, if I haven't seen one. Um, Mr. Galloway joins the program today. What an honor. What a pleasure. Hello, George, and thank you for joining the program today. Thank you for the opportunity. Quite a breathtaking uh, introduction, I I must say. I never see American (laughs) television, and after that, I'm very glad that I don't. Well, George, just so my viewers, uh, pretty pretty much everybody knows about you, but if they don't, I'm just going to tell them about your impeccable uh, track record. Uh, British politician, broadcaster, writer, Mr. Galloway was born in Dundee, Scotland, after becoming the youngest ever chair of the Scottish Labour Party in 1981. Uh, he's the leader of the Working Party of Britain, Workers' Party of Britain. Uh, Moets, you have the mother of all talk shows. Amazing, amazing show on YouTube as well. Uh, with 30 years worth of experience in the British Parliament, former MP George Galloway uses a unique perspective to debate, discuss politics, geopolitics, war, and, well, you name it. It's a no-holds-bar review of news around the world. I've watched your show, I don't know how many times, uh, on a weekly basis now. But uh, once again, you say on um, the description of the show, unlike other talk shows, this is an open debate where free speech is celebrated with the host willingly, and if you think you're hard enough, probably to call into the show. (laughs) So, George, um, let's start off by talking about China. I mentioned that word China, and that is a word that is, well, in today's society, will pretty much open up anybody for an opinion. Uh, You just recently been to China, is that correct? Yes, jaw-dropping. Uh, The progress of China is so vast and rapid, it's jaw-dropping. It had been uh, almost 25 years since I had last been in China. And the contrast uh, between uh, my last and my latest visit was just jaw-dropping. The the prosperity of the people, the... uh, prosperity of the public realm, the richness of the public realm, the progress on transportation, staggering that you can go in, uh, I think, 300 plus kilometers an hour uh, on a train from Beijing to Shanghai. You can go to Shanghai for a meeting and come back again in time for dinner. Uh, It is truly remarkable progress. I mean, you know, this word China, uh, when mentioned this world in 2023, it's usually followed up by an opinion on most people. And I mean, judging by the sound bit that we played at the start of the video, it seems to me that some people obviously haven't visited this country or have any idea what's going on here. I mean, the borders just open to tourists. I mean, uh, what sparked the instant, uh, you know, um, arrival to this fantastic country? Well, uh, I was there for a conference myself, uh, but uh, for anyone considering uh, making a tourist visit to China, I heartily recommend it. You'll be welcomed with open arms, uh, with the hospitality at the highest levels. Uh, you will not be disappointed in anything that you see or do in China. And that is, of course, not 
how China is viewed uh, through the prism of, I should say prison, but I say prism uh, of the mass media, the uh, excerpts from American talk shows that you showed at the beginning, shows the breathless hysteria uh, over uh, issues of China that is prevalent in the so-called mainstream media in the West. And of course, it has its effect. Uh, the, the, my, my wife is not Chinese. She's Indonesian. But she looks as if she could be Chinese. And uh, not being Chinese hasn't protected her uh, even in London, uh, from racist abuse and and blame for COVID and all the things that, on a much more deadly level, uh, are being visited on Asian people in the United States, for example, and in other parts of Europe. That's, if you like, the personal cost of this sinophobia, this hatred and loathing of all things China that is being engendered. And on the macro level, uh, people are tooling up all over the globe. Australia, uh, just the latest one to not only hand over hundreds of billions of dollars to the United States to spend for them on American weapons, I'll warrant, but bringing a former rear admiral from the United States to oversee their defense rebuild. The rebuild is even uh, extending to long-range aircraft uh, to, what, attack China, uh, a hypersonically nuclear-armed superpower, uh, when, when uh, the whole population of Australia isn't even the population of Beijing. Uh, this hysteria is leading to huge waste of resources, lost opportunities in mm. trade and investment with China, and for people who are Chinese or look like they might be, uh, actual physical violence on the ground. It's a very sorry state of affairs. You know, I tend to agree with you on that. The The other thing that I find rather interesting is that Australia is uh, saying that they need to protect their trade routes. Well, their major trade route is with China. China so they're sp yeah. spending billions on that. You know, I want to roll back to 1996 for a moment. And this was a very interesting year for me. That was the year where I discovered the internet for the first time. For a lot of the young viewers here, they may not know the feeling of it, but turning on that computer for the first time, discovering the internet and seeing a wealth of information that a person uh, would never be able to get unless it was in the libraries. And I mentioned libraries because that is, I think, my best example on how the collective West countries would monitor what we read, how we read, when we read. They would close the libraries at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and that was your source of information. Fast forward to 1996, everything opens up, and, well, for the first time, we get a look into the Soviet Union, we get a look into China, and... I would say to the viewers, good luck finding a book on China or the Soviet Union prior to 1996 in your local libraries, because it was definitely not there. Uh, I'm going to uh, let's go to the full panel here um, uh, in the studio, Galway, and uh, I'm going to mention a couple of dates for you. And maybe you can help me get some clarity, because the more I investigate these dates, you know, having the tools that we have now to go back and question some of the things we've seen in life. One of them would have been um, 
I will, I'm going to go back to the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia and to really kind of wrap my head around that. Um, what's your thoughts on what happened during that time? I guess that was 78 days of aerial bombardment that ripped that uh, country, Yugoslavia, into shreds. I mean, what's your your take on that? Did we get the well, truth I was, when that uh, was happening? I, I, I was a very big supporter of the former Yugoslavia and its leader, Tito, was a personal hero of mine. And so the deliberately engendered breakup of Yugoslavia and the fanning of nationalist and sectarian flames was something I opposed as a member of parliament uh, throughout my time there. Uh, but when uh, the 1999 uh, NATO bombardment uh, of Yugoslavia, as it then remained, just Serbia and Montenegro, uh, and the bombardment of television stations, the Chinese embassy, uh, railway trains on bridges, and the slaughter of innocents. I mean, uh, I think 19 people died in the television station in mm. Belgrade, and all of them were uh, mere workers in the station, makeup ladies, tea ladies, uh, um, security personnel, old men, janitors, and so on. It was a horrific crime. Uh, the bombardment of the Chinese embassy also leading to uh, loss of life. The numbers who died on the train were uh, in the scores and, of course, countless other bombardments over uh, nearly three months uh, brought the uh, the government in uh, in Belgrade to to its knees. But the people never were on their knees. They remained bristling with defiance against NATO for that uh, a quarter of a century later. And that's why in Serbia today, you will not find anyone who supports NATO in its proxy war with Russia, because Russia stood with Serbia and NATO bombarded them. Uh, their civilian infrastructure, their ministry buildings in the center of a great European city. Uh, they always tell us that NATO has kept the peace in Europe. They conveniently forget that Serbia was a part of Europe and will remain so, whether or not it is allowed to join the EU or not. And my advice to them would be to beware of that poison chalice in any case. Uh, so uh, NATO has never been about keeping the peace, neither in Europe nor as it has grown and expanded uh, around the world. Uh, Colombia before it elected uh, left of center president, was made uh, a candidate member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, Colombia, in South America. What first attracted NATO to Colombia? The fact that it was the next door neighbor of Venezuela, a country that NATO and the United States had targeted for regime change with the whole battery of sanctions and so on. So you don't have to be Einstein to work out why they recruited Colombia as a candidate member of NATO. NATO attacked, invaded, regime changed Libya, then the richest country in Africa, now a complete basket case, not even a state at all, with three parliaments, 
three governments, four armies, uh, and no borders. Its uh, doors were blown off uh, by by NATO, which has nothing to do with keeping the peace, nothing to do with the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization area. This constant expansion of NATO is the biggest threat to world peace today. And of course, that's being played out for the moment uh, in Eastern Europe, but it might not be long uh, before it's played out in the Taiwan Straits. Yeah, that's the fear here is in China, you know, people would talk to me about this exact comment, you know, the Taiwan Straits, what's going on with Taiwan. And about six to nine months ago, it wasn't even, you know, uh, in my realm of worries. Now, definitely in uh, the worry department, that is for certain. The other thing that I want to mention is, you know, we've watched what NATO has done. They pretty much uh, cleared the stock shelves of all their old military equipment, dumped it in Ukraine, got a nice uh, replenishment of brand new equipment going into those countries. And while they're at it, it was just like Walmart. They're expanding stores in Finland and Sweden and uh, spending a lot of money. And while China is building bridges, the Americans are building bases. And my worry is, I mean, is America going to run out of countries to invade? I mean, they've bombed 36 countries since World War II. I mean, your thoughts on that? Well, um, I speak as someone from Britain, and there's only 24 countries in the whole world that Britain has not invaded, uh, including the United States, uh, of course. Uh, so, uh, of course, empires uh, constantly expand until they overexpand. Uh, and they rise until they begin to decline and fall. And I think that we are living through a period now, uh, such as has not been seen in, in a century, as Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin discussed, uh, just a month or so ago, uh, on the historic visit to Moscow. I do think that the, uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire has many, many comparators with the, uh, with the fall of the United States empire that we're watching now. They overextend, uh, they debase their currency, uh, they can no longer pay the satrapies to guard their interests, and a moral degeneracy inside their own society, famous in Rome, but now pretty much undeniable in the West as we like to call it, though we include Japan and Australia in the West for some perverse reason. And we, of course, have in Western countries vast numbers of people who've gained nothing from Western hegemony and many who oppose it in any case and many who are refugees or migrants from the places that Western hegemony beggared and who've had to come to the site of the empire in order to get anything that can be possibly described as a better and more secure life. So uh, it's complicated, this East-West business. But the American empire is very obviously in decline. Uh, when they sent out uh, the order to isolate Russia, it completely failed. They set out the order to destroy the Russian currency. In fact, it's our banks that are now collapsing, not Russian banks. The ruble was the best performing currency of 2022, and it has uh, started 2023 rather well. 
the euro and the pound have sunk and sunk. Uh, so uh, the uh, signs of or the harbingers of uh, the decline and fall of the Western Empire are everywhere to be seen. Uh, the list of countries defying the United States is growing and growing. The list of countries trying to join the BRICS, for example, is growing and growing. We're going to run out of alphabet to <laughs> describe the BRICS uh, very soon. The BRICS is now bigger than the so-called G7. The economic outlook uh, for China and even Russia, despite all these sanctions, is far better than the economic outlook for the countries of the empire, uh, the, the metropolis itself in the United States, but also uh, the satrapies, uh, the vassal states uh, of the European Union and Great Britain. Uh, our uh, military uh, is simply incapable, as you pointed out, even of producing the war material, never mind joining and winning a war, uh, with uh, Russia or China still less against both. Uh, so the, the, and the, the moral degeneracy, you just have to switch on TikTok or YouTube or even your mainstream television to see that moral degeneracy and all its ugliness. Uh, so all the signs that were harbingers of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire are more than visible in relation to the so-called Western Empire. We're also seeing a decline in the media in these countries as well. And I want to mention a couple of names to you of some people that uh, would like to also thank you and commend you for the work that you've done for our community as well. Uh, some of the names like Patrick Lancaster, who is a freelance journalist, um, who is an independent crowdfunded journalist, that has been in the Donbass area since 2013. In fact, I think he is one individual that is uh, documenting stuff that could eventually one day end up at a war tribunal, uh, which could be quite serious. Hasn't been silenced yet. Um, another person, Daniel Dunbrill, has mentioned you, Brian Berletic from the New Atlas. These are friends of mine, the Duran, Alexander Mercurus, and Alex, Alex Christoforu. Uh, and other notable names like that, I, Earl Gray, Cyrus Jansen. We just want to uh, say to you that what you uh, are doing with the mother of all talk shows and your support of us in our shows here really, really uh, is uh, a helping hand to us. And we just wanted to add that to our show today to say thank you uh, for doing that. Most kind, uh, and of course, uh, my thanks uh, are due also to them because uh, some of the names you mentioned, Brian uh, is on my next show, for example, uh, along with Nico House from the United States. We are showcasing people who, in a sane, rational media world, would be Pulitzer Prize winners. They'd certainly be candidates for all kinds of journalistic awards. Instead, they receive brickbats and condemnations, false labeling, and even in the case of Patrick, uh, well-charted uh, threats of harm, even death. Uh, so uh, it's important that uh, we showcase them to a wider public. And we have built in just three years uh, an audience of well over one million people per week. And so we are introducing uh, our audience to them, 
and they in turn uh, provide testimony from the front line and analysis uh, from a different point of view uh, that uh, simply won't be found on the so-called legacy media, which fewer and fewer people are watching, by the way, and fewer and fewer people are reading. It will no longer be correct to describe them as the mainstream media. Increasingly, the mainstream media is us. Our show has an audience which dwarfs all of the current affairs uh, shows uh, in uh, Western countries. In my own country of Britain, uh, we are five, six times bigger uh, than the comparable current affairs shows on the uh, so-called mainstream television stations. Even Tucker Carlson, the now famous and dismissed <laughs> by Mr. Murdoch, uh, he was a huge success story on uh, cable news. I note that he was paid 1.6 million US dollars a month for being so. Uh, but even his audience is only double my audience. Uh, and I get much less than half <laughs> of what he gets. Uh, and sometimes nothing at all. So, uh, you know, we are, uh, we are where it's at and where increasingly it will be at. Well, thank you for that, George. I mean, um, we started our show called the Let's Talk China show, um, when the pandemic started because a lot of us that uh, were doing business here or traveling here, I'm in the city of Chongqing, a fantastic city, and I invite you next time you come here. Mm. Um, it's a remarkable city as well. What it's done in the last 30 years, uh, it's trade routes, it's logistics. It's been absolutely amazing. We started the show, uh, there was four of us, uh, Lee Barrett, uh, Daniel Dumbrell, Guelo 60, and myself. And um, it started on a small audience and then just flourished because people were tired of not, you know, just seeing one part of the message. Can you imagine uh, a world without the Duran or without the Brian Berletics or the Patrick Lancasters? We would hear nothing uh, about what's going on on that other uh, part of the world. Um, something I want to mention now, as uh, we're getting deeper into a couple of topics, it always brings me back to every time I'm doing some research on the United States, I just shake my head and say, wait, how did I miss that? How am I missing that? Uh, another thing that's starting to really ramp up in media attention is, uh, you know, the November 22nd assassination of JFK. There's information now coming out about that. And I don't think we've got a clear answer on uh, the assassination that's happened. Apparently, there's some information that uh, the public hasn't seen. I know Netflix tries to do its, its shot at making a couple of uh, programs about it. And, uh, I mean, your thoughts? Well, I have never been in any doubt that the state itself murdered its own president in uh, 1963 on November 22 in that nightmare on Elm Street, coming from uh, an Irish Catholic background myself, uh, President Kennedy was of enormous importance to us and to my family. My father came out and told me that night that President Kennedy had been murdered and I, I burst into tears there. And then I was nine years old. Uh, and then, of course, I watched in horror as one after another the icons of, uh, of progress, of liberation uh, in the 1960s USA uh, were similarly murderously cut down. Martin Luther King, 
Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy Sr., uh, and many others. Uh, and I have never been in any doubt that the organs of the deep state of the United States were deeply implicated in their murders. Now, uh, the idea uh, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, from high up in a book repository uh, managed to put these bullets expertly through the brain of the president uh, was, to me, even as a nine-year-old, uh, deeply implausible. And now we know, thanks to the Zabrudar film and all the scholarship that has uh, emanated from the U.S., uh, since, in the decades since, uh, nobody now believes it. When I was nine years old, virtually everybody believed that Lee Harvey Oswald was the single killer of Jack Kennedy. But now nobody uh, believes that. You'd have to be extremely credulous indeed to believe that. Uh, he was not shot from one angle, but from two. Uh, there was not one gunman, but many uh, gunmen. Uh, the uh, murder of Oswald in the police station in Dallas by Jack Ruby was uh, carefully planned to silence uh, a patsy, as Oswald called himself. And Ruby knew that he was terminally ill, was presumably uh, handsomely rewarded for uh, his family uh, to do that deed. Um, and of course, the Warren Commission was really the Dulles uh, Commission, Alan Dulles, the uh, spook uh, extraordinaire in U.S. intelligence uh, undergrowth, uh, was the man who really ran the Warren Commission. And I don't know why uh, Donald Trump, for example, does not run on uh, a policy to release all the files, to reopen the investigation, not just into the killing of Jack Kennedy, but the killing of Bobby Kennedy, too. This would uh, cross the aisle. It would appeal to uh, to liberal and progressives who wouldn't ordinarily be queuing up to uh, vote for Donald Trump. It would, it would widen his appeal. <laughs> and if he watches this show, and you'd be surprised the shows he watches, uh, I hope he hears me. Um, but uh, all these uh, murders were, uh, in my view, um, part of this long, slow death agony of the American empire, which is now reaching uh, unstoppable levels. Yeah, that's the worrying point here. You know, has America lost its ability to keep the dollar as the world pegged currency? The other thing I wanted to point out was, you know, as I go deeper into American history, you know, looking at the Watergate scandal, I mean, here is Nixon, who was reelected by one of the largest margins ever. And I mean, you know, I think it was lopsided, almost 17 million votes in his favor uh, for his second term. And then in a matter of months, uh, he's out of office. I mean, these are very, you know, I, I don't want to say um, – strange things happening but i mean we are now into 2023 i mean you've seen uh what the governments have done uh even during the trump era i mean uh twice uh he was uh tried to be run out of office even when he's out of office they want to run him out of office i mean we've seen the cancel culture and now we're seeing the cancel country and china is definitely the target for the cancel country 
Um, and, you know, where does that put America today? I mean, you know, I don't want this to sound like it's a pick on America program, but my, oh, my, um, you know, as my dad said, you know, the guilty scream the loudest. So, I mean, Richard Nixon, uh, the, the mere mention of his name uh, takes me back. When you think of the crimes committed by American presidents since Richard Nixon, you realize that uh, he he was not the war. You don't have to be a crook to be the president of the USA, but if you are, it helps. And uh, Richard Nixon was very obviously a crook, even though he famously said that's what he wasn't. But he was. <laughs> but he wasn't as big a crook as the people who've come after him. Uh, and in fact, in foreign policy terms, uh, he displayed uh, a grasp of international affairs uh, far superior to the people who came after him, not least in uh, his opening to China and his uh, establishment of the one China policy, which all the subsequent presidents claim that they adhere to, but in practice do precisely the uh, opposite. So it is funny to uh, think back uh, to the relatively benign criminal burglary of the Democrat National Committee uh, that uh, that uh, Nixon presided over, or at least presided over the cover-up uh, too. Watergate looks like uh, a, a tea party uh, now compared to the crimes that have been committed ever since. Uh, let's talk about your your visit to China. I mean, you were talking about the the country has uh, you know expanded leaps and bounds technology wise. Uh, their space program is pretty uh, you know aggressive here. Uh, they've launched a lot of rockets. Uh, they've got their uh, space station well underway. Uh, it's quite worrying to NASA. I mean, is the Chinese going to maybe unveil something that NASA has not really talked about, or maybe? some achievements that maybe NASA has maybe said they've achieved and maybe not. I don't want to sound too conspiracy theorist here, but I mean, when it comes to space, I mean, this big space race happened in the sixties and uh, we haven't seen much until now that China saying, Hey, wait a minute, we might uh, head to the moon soon. Um, it's really starting to spark a lot of reaction in the, uh, uh, in, in NASA, especially in the United States. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, you'll remember they uh, kept uh, China out of the space station and now they are complaining that China will not share data with them from its space station. Uh, China has already been to the moon, albeit not with a manned flight, uh, but I, I'm absolutely certain that China has that kind of surprise up her sleeve and possibly many, many others. Uh, Chinese technology is breathtaking in the scale, the scope, the pace of development. Already the second biggest producer of semiconductors. Uh, the uh, semiconductor issue is, of course, prominent in, uh, in discussion of Taiwan. Uh, but these are Chinese people who are building these semiconductors in Taiwan. They're all Chinese people. Uh, Chinese scientific, engineering, technological development are, uh, as I said, breathtaking. The uh, 
the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is building ports, airports, harbors, highways, bridges, all kinds of, uh, of infrastructure quickly and beautifully uh, and transforming the landscape in many formerly underdeveloped parts of the world. What's the United States offering instead uh, as an alternative? What's Britain offering instead or as an alternative? As you put it earlier, uh, they build, uh, China builds highways, we build bases. Uh, the Western Empire can knock things down, but China builds things up. And uh, I don't think that's confined to this dear green space of, of Mother Earth. Uh, I think the heavens will soon be opening up to uh, Chinese ingenuity and technology. Yeah, it's also the relationships that China is, is you know, gaining along the way here. You know, with the BRI, we even see the uh, International Land Sea Trade Corridor here in southwest China, uh, just seeing how goods are delivered. And it really does impact people's lives here. Because it, you know, even small communities, it's like plugging these communities into a massive grid, uh, whether it's a new power grid, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, energy vehicles or high speed rail. I mean, my wife went to a region here in China and she was saying, you know, Alex, it took me about four hours to get there. And I said, well, you know, there's no passenger trains in Canada. <laughs> you know, there's only one rail, to one one line going one way, and, and if there's cargo coming the other, they have to move the trains off the side of the track to bring the uh, other railway uh, through the other direction. And uh, you know that has, uh, you know, well, look at the high is, speed, yeah. Alex. Look at the the high speed rail issue uh, mm-hmm. as a metric of comparison. China has built in the last decade. More than 30,000 kilometers of high-speed railway. And I mean high-speed railway. I mean a blur going past you. In that same 10 years, the United States has built zero kilometers. Not a single kilometer of high-speed rail has been built in the U.S. in the period that China has built more than 30,000 kilometers of it. And the pace of uh, building these high-speed rails is quickening, not slowing. Or look at the metro in Beijing, uh, which even in the 25 years since I had last seen it, if you look at the metro map uh, of Beijing 25 years ago and look at it now, <laughs> it's, it's a maze. It is literally a blur of lines and and I mean railway, subway lines, stations, uh, stretching ever wider, ever farther. Look, if you're if you're going to judge uh, the pudding by its eating, and we say, don't we? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The Chinese pudding is beating the Western pudding hands down on every front. You know, I'm going to add to that. Uh, this country is building cities the size of Chicago, one per year. This uh, in China, a city of Chicago, and uh, is pretty much being resurrected, built uh, even before people move there. Now, of course, you're going to get the uh, Western media walk into these pre-built cities and say, "Look at this ghost town. There's nobody here." And then they don't go back eight years later, or you know, five years later, when there's you know, ten, fifteen million people there. 
China's building a city to move a lot of the, um, I guess, government stuff from Beijing. It's called Shang'an. I mean, that has been uh, being, you know, it started years ago, and I think it's not going to be completed until the 2030s. But that's how far into the future uh, they're looking. And another thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, we see and hear a lot of the Western media say, well, you know, they took our jobs in the United States. Uh, we're in this position because of China. You know, there are people that are working in these regions where I'm at right now. They work very hard. They save their money. And over a period of time, they decide to maybe travel to another part of the world. And let's say, hmm, maybe they do uh, want to buy a home maybe in the south of France or, uh, you know, a, a small little cottage in, the, in you know, the uh, beautiful Britain. And they're, you know, being singled out like uh, you know, with Parliament and, uh, you know, politicians in the United States saying, you know, banning uh, Chinese from buying property. Now, these are people that have worked very hard. They saved their money and they want to go and invest it in something. There is a lot of Chinese money outside of China in other countries, investment wise. And there's a lot of America in China. I think you probably saw that when you came here, that you see iPhones here, you see Teslas here, there's KFCs, Pizza Huts, McDonald's, Pepsi, Coca-Cola. I mean, they're selling their goods to the Chinese very happily and all these high brands. I mean, uh, when's Johnny going to get a break? I, I, yeah. I, I, used to, I used to sit in a rather grand uh, Starbucks uh, quite close to Tiananmen uh, during my recent uh, visit. A very good coffee it was uh, too. This is what is so hard for the empire to swallow, that... China is better at capitalism than they are. Now, of course, it is capitalism with Chinese characteristics, just like it is socialist with Chinese characteristics. This is something new uh, in the world, unforeseen by, by theorists, by philosophers, by economists. It's something that is the product of a synthesis of uh, the leading role for the state in the economy with a flourishing private sector, which of course makes profits. Some of those profits are exported in the form that you described, the buying of property, the making of foreign investments and, and so on. The differences, the anarchy of Western globalized capitalism is its fatal flaw. Whereas the uh, hand of the state in Chinese economic development is always present and can be applied whenever China's national interest, the interests of all of its people, is at stake. That's entirely absent in the Western globalized capitalist uh, model, where the private sector is everything and the state is weak and emaciated and doesn't have the support of the people, even if it wanted to intervene in the economy. All of that is the reverse uh, in China, where the vast majority of the people trust the state, whereas the vast majority of the people in the West distrust the state that they live in. Uh, it has a government which is looking out for the interests of all whilst permitting 
private inter, uh, interests also to flourish. And that model, unforeseen, even by me unforeseen, uh, is uh, proving uh, quite an attractive prospect across the world. People look at China, if they do, if we can get them to look at China and say, wow, that system seems to be working. It's working a lot better than our own system is uh, working. And this is very difficult for the rulers of the empire to swallow. There's even a Manchester uh, United superstore in Beijing. I'm a Manchester United supporter. And I, I went in there and bought much more economically than I would have done at Old Trafford in Manchester, uh, a whole bundle of uh, Manchester United merchandise. Uh, so a big uh, hello to the Manchester United Superstore in Beijing. George, um, I want to commend you once again for, uh, you know, watching uh, that clip at the start of the show here. Uh, you went toe-to-toe with uh, American politicians. Can you tell us what that feeling was when you sat there? And I have to tell you, I'm going to add that segment to the end of this show because, you know, when you – uh, are talking and explaining your thoughts and your feelings. I mean, no one does it better than you, George. I'll tell you that right now. Well, the that's very that you kind. Express it. God, uh, God gave me wings that day. It was my best day so far uh, in my life. For me, it was a great opportunity to get up close and personal and speak truth to power. Uh, there is great honor in speaking the truth in the court of the Sultan. And that's what I was uh, able to do. I used to be a boxer when I was a teenager. And so I, I knew the look in the eyes of an adversary when he no longer wants to be in the ring. He's waiting for the bell uh, to ring. And I saw that look in the eyes of the American senators that day. I, I quickly saw that they had realized that they had made a very big mistake in allowing me this opportunity. As George W. Bush might put it, they misunderestimated me. A working class, uh, boy from a, from a municipal council housing project with no education, left school at 16, never went to university went to work on the factory floor. Probably on paper, I looked like a pushover. Uh, but uh, it was uh, very quick that I noticed that they realized they'd made a mistake. But by then, uh, every television camera in the world was whirring and filming it all. And uh, many millions, hundreds, millions or more uh, have watched that uh, that fight between me and the U.S. Senate. And it's probably... Uh, tells you a lot that they never did invite me back. You know, I'm watching, I was watching you a lot on, you know, social network and then out of nowhere, your channel appeared uh, a while back and your audience continues to grow. I mean, what inspired you to start this uh, mother of all talk shows? I mean, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, It's not uh, a departure for me uh, I, because you know, I, I'm a party leader, leader of the Workers' Party of Britain. I was almost 30 years in Parliament. As you pointed out at the beginning, at the age of 26, 
I was the chairman of the Labour Party in Scotland, the youngest ever uh, to hold that role, and that's a title that will never be taken uh, from me. Um, I uh, have always believed that the job of a, a political figure was to communicate with people. Uh, there was no point in uh, keeping your politics to yourself or talking only to uh, people who agree with you, preaching only to the choir, uh, the cognoscenti. Uh, what was vital was to take your arguments out into the public. So in 2005, on radio, a radio which was then bought over by Rupert Murdoch, so like Tucker Carlson, I too have been sacked by Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> Uh, and uh, it provided a great opportunity uh, for me, as I'm sure it will for him. Uh, so uh, when I got a radio show, and I got that by being a good guest on radio shows, uh, somebody had the brainwave, uh, why don't we give this guy uh, his own show? And it grew and grew and grew. So this is uh, from 2005, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 2005 uh, to now I have, broadcast thousands of episodes of the mother of all talk shows on radio and on television, online, uh, all of them live, all of them completely unscripted with no opening script for me and no knowledge by me of what the callers to the show are going to say or ask. Uh, uh, and it shows, it shows that it is what well, I call it the open university of the airwaves. And there's a lot of people uh, from every part of the world, particularly the Anglosphere, of course, but amazingly from places that have no connection to uh, the Anglosphere, uh, are tuning into it more and more often. And as I say, I mean, I think last week the audience was 1.25 million. Mm, uh, which wow. for a show on a shoestring coming out of London is something phenomenal. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's talk TV on which he spends millions and millions of pounds, dollars, is sometimes talking to hundreds, not even thousands of people where we're talking to millions. Well, that's impressive. Uh, another uh, thing that I would just like to say to you again is that um, please uh, keep up this amazing journey that you're on here with this, uh, you know, mother of all talk shows. It really is changing people's lives and opening up uh, the ability for the younger generation to discover what journalism and what, sure. you know, shows that uh, have no censorship. Uh, can really educate our, our, our younger generation. It really is important. As, as, as long as God gives me breath, I'll be doing it. And after me, by the grace of God, I have six children. And they're all desperate to get their hands on my microphone. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, George, I know you have a program to attend to now, but I just want to say thanks again. And for all my subscribers that are watching, please uh, click on George's link below there and subscribe to his channel and definitely tune into his show. It's been an honor, a pleasure. Um, my mother's not going to believe it that I had you on this program. Uh, <laughs> Give her my regards and thanks right. very much for the opportunity. I hope we can Thank talk you, George. again. Have Thank yourself you. a fantastic night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.